Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. This is your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT. And once again, we have Michael Smith with us here to talk about uh, what's been going on in Texas last week. So Michael, uh, let's just get to it and tell us uh, what happened last week. Well, uh, I think what most people were interested in is that uh, in the Western District of Texas, Judge uh, Alan Albright issued orders in response to two federal circuit opinions, which had strongly indicated the, that he ought to transfer the cases. The first was the Icarongo case, uh, which was transferred to the Northern District of California uh, in light of the Federal Circuit's guidance. Now, the order doesn't say much, but this was one of the cases where the Federal Circuit said that the party was manipulating the venue statute and not in the good way. So I guess I got to ask, is there a good way to manipulate the venue statute? There, there is. The good way to manipulate the venue statute is when the defendant restricts their activity in a district so suit can't be brought there. Okay, but obviously the Federal Circuit thought there was a bad way too. Right, and the bad way is when plaintiff restricts their activity in a district so suit can't be brought there. And this was that, that latter situation. The plaintiff uh, that was asserting the claims had been created with the ability to sue only in the Eastern and the Western districts of Texas. Because it couldn't have sued the defendant in California, venue wouldn't be proper there. And the federal circuit said, we're not going to allow that. And Judge uh, Albright transferred the case uh, to California based on that. I don't know that this is the last word uh, on that tactic, but uh, it is of interest that Judge uh, Albright did transfer that case after getting the federal circuit's guidance. Well, and I, that it's an interesting point you make that uh, this is the, the first case about this type of plaintiff restricted activity uh, we'll see if plaintiffs find more creative and maybe less uh, ham-handed ways to, to go about it um, in the future. So I think you're right. We'll, we're going to see more, more trials of this. Well, th uh, that was one of the two cases. What's the other one? The other one is our Mandamus Light case. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about in In Ray Dish, the Federal Circuit, um, said that Judge Albright had erred uh, in his uh, venue determination, but they didn't grant mandamus. They said, well, in light of this guidance, we're confident that the court will uh, take this into consideration and, and make the right ruling. And the dissent, Judge Reyna called it mandamus light and said, well, either, either we grant mandamus or we don't, but I'm not really sure what this is. Well, the order that we got out last week was um, Judge Albright, after he got that order, the parties did additional briefing and uh, talked about, well, here's what should happen in, in light of what the Federal Circuit said. Now, the errors that the Federal Circuit talked about was that Judge Albright noted in isolation the fact that DISH has over 1,000 employees in the Western District, but they don't have anything to do with the manufacturer or the design of the product. Uh, he also treated the convenience of party employee witnesses as less than that of non-party witnesses and said, made the observation also, it's not likely that all these witnesses are going to be called to testify. And finally, they said he hadn't given sufficient consideration to the differences in co-pending cases and the available of MDL procedures. So after getting the briefing, he goes back, he says, okay, that changes my analysis. It affects three factors. Uh, but it doesn't change the outcome. 
He says, no, the manufacturing sale and sales uh, facilities uh, in, in the Western District may not, um, uh, may not, he said that's still relevant to the local interest factor. So the neutral factor on local interest didn't change. He found that the recalibrated weight on the party employee witnesses now caused the convenience of the witnesses factor to strongly weigh in, fa in favor of transfer. But on the practical problems, he went back and said the co-pending cases are close enough that, yes, there is some judicial economy to going forward on this. So after he does all of that, he totes up the factors again and says, OK, yes, it's a closer call now, but you still don't get over the clearly more convenient burden, uh, the clearly more convenient standard. So I'm still going to deny the motion now. The Federal Circuit said in NRA DISH that any subsequent mandamus was going to be judged based on what's in that order. So presumably we'll see this order go up in the next few days and then we'll find out what they want to do uh, since he didn't transfer the case after the language that was in that original opinion. Well, when I when I read to this case, it looks like you know, the Federal Circuit gave a, a roadmap of what he should do better. He followed that roadmap exactly. So now if the federal circuit wants to overrule him, they're really going to have to go after his judgment and how he weighed the factors they told him to weigh. Right. They, it, it, they gave him instruction and said, okay, you can't do this. You can't do this. And this other thing you need to consider this. So he goes back, he corrects that. He then weighs it again and says, okay, it still doesn't get over the threshold. So, so yes, they'll, they'll, uh, the opinion pointed out the federal circuit didn't have a problem with any of the other factors I was looking at. It would just be with these three and I have rebalanced them in line with the guidance that I got. And here's where I, here's where I come. It will be interesting to see whether, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, two judges were not willing to mandamus him, wanting to give him another shot at it. The third judge said, if we're the standard isn't met for mandamus, so the real question, I think, is going to be whether one of those two judges that were in the majority last time are going to say this is enough for mandamus now or this is not enough. Um, or, or did they intend for him to transfer it and, and not get so tied up in the actual analysis and the facts? So it'll be very interesting to see what the guidance is on this. Well, and I also think it'll be interesting to see if the Federal Circuit's going to hold that line on mandamus is supposed to be an extraordinary remedy, um, not just in a reevaluation of a, of a judge's opinions. So we'll learn a lot. I think so. We had another interesting opinion from Judge Albright last week. Uh, some A lot of times we're presented with issues trying to get a foreign defendant served under the Hague Convention. And in this case, the defendant filed 11 identical motions in 11 cases saying your service is insufficient. And Judge Albright said, no, the substituted service that we did that I authorized on the defendant's former U.S. counsel and the defendant's domestic subsidiary was enough. And he went through the requirements and said, um, under these facts, this service is sufficient. So uh, I have seen orders from him where he said, you didn't go through the hoops. You didn't ask, you didn't try other things first. In this case, he said, you tried other things first. It didn't work. You came to the court. I authorized something that is sufficient. So if you're having issues with service, I think this, uh, the WSOU case is a good one to look at to see what are your options on service. 
I think it also is a, is a great reminder that there's a process set up in the federal rules and you need to follow that and document it really well. Uh, I was looking at some of the other orders where people weren't successful and you're right. They just, they took shortcuts and for service, it doesn't seem like uh, Judge Albright's going to put up with shortcuts. Right. No shortcuts. There is, there is a, a, a due order of pleading, so to speak. Another interesting order, it's a short one from Judge Albright, but, uh, but it's more than we often get beca because he handles discovery disputes on, uh, you don't do briefing, you do it through uh, phone calls. Sometimes there will just be an entry in the docket that a motion to compel or, or that, the, that there was a hearing uh, and you won't really know what was going on. Well, in this case, in the uh, Theta case, the judge, the parties had an issue about what discovery can the plaintiff get concerning sales and importation of accused products. And you see the judge going through saying, okay, these depositions are out, these depositions are in, here's what you need to produce, here's what you don't need to produce. So again, it, it gives you a little insight into the sorts of things that at least in that case, the judge believed the defendant should produce. And uh, uh, he also goes through extensions. The parties agreed to extensions on expert reports. And he said, to the extent somebody is prejudiced, come back and ask for additional time, but reiterates that parties can do that by agreement. They don't have to come back to the court for that. Now, that, that last piece where he said that he would grant an extension uh, under certain circumstances, if you can show basically discovery misconduct, was that a, well, a shot across the bow or just a general oh, statement? No, no, no. I, well, I think it's a shot across the bow, but he didn't really say misconduct. He said to avoid prejudice from another party's discovery, timing, or conduct. So I think what he's just saying is that I can't go in with sharp elbows and, and produce something late and then expect the other side to sit there and just take it. If the other side is prejudiced as a result of the timing, the timing I had may have been perfectly uh, appropriate. I've had that come up in cases recently where uh, one side complains, well, this was done at the last minute. Well, yeah, it was done before the deadline. Well, even, even in that situation, and that was in a hearing before Judge Payne, Judge Payne noted that, okay, yeah, that was late. So what do you need to make things work? So I think what Judge Albright is telling us here is that if the other side's timing or conduct prejudices you, it doesn't have to be misconduct. It just has to be you need a little bit more time to get something done. If the other side tries to jam you up, give him a call and he'll, he'll address that. And, and that's helpful guidance because I can take that to the other side and say, look, if you try to jam me up, clearly the judge is, is going to give me relief. Uh, if it's causing me prejudice. So again, we're reading between the lines here, but it's a useful order because it does give you something you can read between the lines and learn. Well, and then we got a, a motion for summary judgment uh, of invalidity out of, out of the Western Division. And it's a great reminder that the Western Division is more than Judge Albright. Oh, that's true. It's uh, a patent case that was getting close to trial. It's not now but a patent case in front of Judge Lee Yackel in Austin. And uh, the judge granted the motion for summary judgment invalidity. And he, well, what he did was actually accept a magistrate judge's finding that it, invalidity ought, ought to be granted summary judgment, but also that the plaintiff had failed to provide good cause to amend its notice of claim selected for trial, which reminds you 
that the plaintiff had narrowed their case down to certain claims. And then when those claims got knocked out, the court wasn't going to give you a do-over to go back and uh, amend your notice of claims. I had the same thing come up with a different judge a few days ago where he struck part of an expert's report and the other side says, oh, well, can we come, can we amend that to address that? And well, it's, there's a little bit of a hurdle there uh, at that point. But here, uh, it seems to be pretty clear that if you're going to try to change claims based on something like that, you're going to have to show good cause and you're going to have to show more than the plaintiff had here. Well, looking at this, it also struck me that the judge had immense respect for the process that the magistrate judge went through and, and deferred a lot to the, the process that the magistrate judge uh, went through. Oh, that's, that's correct. I mean, uh, I think we uh, practitioners in federal court know how much respect district judges have for the magistrate judges that are working on their case. And in this case, uh, Judge Yackel looks at the analysis and, and stands behind the analysis and uh, conducts the required review, but, but supports the process that it's gone through. Well, as we move north, what's, what's happening in the Northern District these days? Well, we've got a couple interesting cases out of the Northern District. Uh, the first is from Judge Kincaid, good, good Baylor lawyer. Uh, and the question there was whether the plaintiff could add counterclaims uh, and was it sanctionable for the uh, party to challenge them? Now, interesting case here. The judge had already invalidated the patent under Section 101. It had already sanctioned the plaintiff under Section 285 and assessed fees. And both of those findings had been affirmed on appeal. When the case came back on remand, and, and this case was a few weeks ago before we started this podcast, but Judge Kincaid allowed the... the um, uh, defendant, the parties are crosswise here, but basically the, the accused infringer, he allowed them to reopen the case to add parties to go after for the awarded fees. They wanted to go after the plaintiff's counsel uh, and some other parties. And the question here was, well, because the court reopened the case, could the plaintiff drop the underlying infringement and in, in validity claims from the case, which would have the effect of maybe making the patent valid again if they could drop those claims. And the court said, the, the defendant said, no, 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 wait a minute. We've gone to all this effort to get these claims invalidated. We don't want them coming back from the dead. And the judge agreed and said, no, you cannot dismiss the underlying claims that I've already granted 101 on. But he said, but that's not sanctionable that the plaintiff asked for that because they were, they were consistent throughout the briefing that we are not trying to get out from under this court's continuing jurisdiction. He said, they're not trying to avoid me enforcing the order. So no, they can't drop the claims, but no, you can't get sanctions from them for them trying to drop the claims. It's a little complicated, but it's an interesting case to follow. The other case out of the Northern District that was interesting is we know that we've got 285 in patent cases that allows attorney's fees in exceptional cases. Well, trademark litigation has a similar statute that permits fees, uh, 1117. Well, in this case, the plaintiff's counsel withdrew after the plaintiff stopped communicating or paying attention. Plaintiff didn't retain substitute counsel, so the court dismiss, dismisses the claims with prejudice. So the defendant comes in and says, okay, exceptional case, I want my fees. And Judge Boyle says, no, this was not exceptional case status. 
the fact that the plaintiff's counsel had to withdraw and that the case wasn't prosecuted, that alone is not sufficient. There was nothing substantive about the case that got that far. So I think that's a useful data point when you're looking at your 285 case. You may be able to talk the plaintiff's counsel into walking away from the case, but here's at least an analogous situation where a court said that's not enough for uh, exceptional case. So, so, Michael, the thing that struck me about this case is that the ask was for $9,680. It probably took them $8,000 to uh, brief the issue to ask for that $9,000. Oh, abs absolutely. Absolutely. I see, I see a number of cases where you can see opportunities to go pick a fight and argue. But if the case is small enough, if the plaintiff is not even represented by counsel, um, it, it's not likely that this is going to be um, successful. So sometimes you have to explain to a client that, yes, we could try this, uh, but you'd have to pay me and I'm not sure you'd ever get your money out of it. So it's one of those, those uh, uh, practical considerations that as lawyers, we hate to run into. D definitely seems like one of those, those cases where the, the clerk and the judge may be rolling their eyes a little bit about the, the waste of judicial resources for no real upside. Right, right. Well, now if we move east. Well, we've got a, a few interesting cases from the Eastern District. And the first was something that you don't see very often. It's section 28251, the rule of recapture. A defendant after a jury trial asked Judge Gilstrap to set aside the jury's verdict of invalidity and grant Jamal uh, of invalidity based on section 251. And what Judge Gilstrap did was he granted it insofar as he said, yes, this should be adjudicated to the bench. And then he goes through findings of fact and conclusions of law and concludes that the defendant, uh, Google in that case, had not shown by clear and convincing evidence that the asserted claims were invalid under Section 251. So this, this opinion is really a thorough opinion, and we don't get a lot of, of opinions from Judge Gilstrap that go through the validity issue from beginning to end. So it is a it is a rare thing for us to learn from. So I it's one I think everybody should just pick up and and at least skim. That's absolutely the case. We've had two of those in the last few weeks. One because the judge concluded that that a party had waived their right to have the jury decide it. And then this one. And it's an interesting finding by the court that he agrees with Google. Yes, this is a legal issue that should be adjudicated by the bench by findings and conclusions. He, analog he analogizes it to um, claim construction and prosecution history estoppel. So that's interesting to know that this judge believes that a 251 issue is an issue of law because not all judges might see that the same way. Well, for anyone doing reissue, um... One of the better opinions I've seen on the on guiding the, the thought process. I think so. Uh, we had another interesting opinion from Judge Gilstrap uh, last week. He denied a request for transfer to the Central District of California, and the reason why was that the case couldn't have been brought there. And what surprised him was that the defendant never addressed that issue. They kept they kept saying, well, we want it transferred there. Well, could it have been brought there? And they kept not responding. And he said that uh, the defendant's silence at the hearing on this was deafening. So they were trying to preserve a jurisdictional challenge, but 
you've got to get past that point in order to get a transfer. He still went through the factors and said that it was not clearly more convenient, but it's an interesting showing that you really need to decide which horse you're going to ride at the beginning. If you can't tell the judge that the case could have been brought in the transferee court, then you're not going to get very far. What happened here? I mean, that's, that's first year Civ Pro or maybe second semester Civ Pro on on this ish threshold issue and i haven't seen anybody just miss it well it, i can sort of see that because i i i remember back when i was a law clerk 30 years ago and i was working on these orders that was just not an issue that you always had to, it was something you could kind of take for granted. You didn't really have to address it. And it's only more recently that it's become clearer that it is a substantive issue. You can't transfer a case to somewhere where it couldn't uh, have been brought originally um, unless your company was set up for exactly that reason, in which case we know you can't do it then. Um, I don't, what seemed to annoy the court was that even after this was brought up and brought up at a hearing the defendant simply would not respond, would not address, would not uh, uh, admit this is a requirement and we don't satisfy the requirement here. So why are, why are you even putting everyone through this analysis when you've got a um, uh, lead pipe cinch response on the first, the very first part of the, of the analysis? Well, then we, we also get a really interesting case on, on DOE defendants and expedited discovery. It, it is, and I, and I wanted to talk about it briefly because the uh, this strike two case, it, it's a case involving um, uh, users of online pornography, and the plaintiff is wanting to add information about John Doe defendants, and Judge Mazant says, okay, yeah, you've previously filed similar motions, and the reason why it's useful to refer to is he goes through the standards for when you can get discovery before the parties have had a conference under Rule 26. I mean, I don't really care about the finding or the subject matter. This is a great cheat sheet for when you have a situation where you need to go in front of a judge before the 26F conference and say, hey, judge, I need some discovery on this. I need to go get some, some facts for a threshold issue on this. This goes through in detail what you have to show and the factors in order to do that. So uh, it's, a, it's a good case to have in your... Uh, quiver if you're needing to get early discovery. Well, then our, our last case for this week takes us to the, the Southern District and a uh, customer suit exception. Well, uh, and um, like Judge Kincaid, Judge Gilstrap, and Judge Mazant, Judge Hainan's a Baylor lawyer, and Judge Hainan is uh, addressing a motion to stay a patent infringement claim based on the customer suit exception. And he denied it, but he said the reason why is because there's only one action here. There's not another action, and this action will resolve all the claims, so there's no risk of inconsistent judgment. But to the extent you think that Southern District judges don't run into things like customer suit exception, here's an order uh, showing that the court well understands the interplay and the, and the policy rationale here and knows when it applies and when it doesn't apply. Well, and for anybody skimming this case, the, the request or the attempt to label this as a customer suit exception was pretty strained. And the, the court, the court handed or handled that pretty, pretty well in that, in my opinion. But the point is that if there were two suits, this probably would have come out differently. 
very, very, very possibly. Uh, this tells you that you've got to set your case up the right way in order to get relief under that argument, because I agree with you. If it was set up the right way, you could very well have gotten what you were wanting here. Well, so this was a, or last week was a week for a creative briefing that was pretty much all shot down. So uh, sometimes creativity is not your friend. Well, uh, you, you, sometimes creativity is the only arrow you've got left. I, I didn't say it was necessarily a bad strategy, but um, you're not always going to win. So I think what you said earlier is you've got to make sure the client knows that you're your way out there. Yep. Every, you have to be sure the client knows that there's a price tag for doing the thing that you really want to do and that they're clear what the likelihood of success is. And, and again, if you're in the middle of a case, it's a little different at the end of the case. And it's a little different if you're going to be in front of the court repeatedly because you don't want to sacrifice your credibility uh, to make an argument like that. Uh, and clients need to understand the value of that credibility. Wonderful, Michael. Uh, we will talk next week and thank you. Okay. Have a good week.